Welcome to Deeper Walks on the Trail podcast. You are on the trail with father-daughter duo Marcus and Stephanie Warner. I'm Stephanie, and I'll be talking with my father, Dr. Marcus Warner, as we discuss topics that help you stay on the trail to a deeper walk with God. Episode 23. Today we're beginning a new series. With the holidays upon us, it seems only appropriate that we spend some time dwelling on the life of Jesus. Hello, Father. Hello, daughter. We get to be in the same room today. We this do. is nice, yeah. And you're in Kentucky with me. I know. Oh, the oh, cat wasn't here with us. There was a cat in here with us. Okay. <laughs> you just had to hear my voice and she you got scared. She was hiding under the couch. All right. Oh, there she was. Okay, we're going to move out. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Well, that was adorable. All right. All right. So, yes. Oh, I am thrilled <laughs> to dive into this topic with you. Um, as we start, do you want to cast a vision for application? Um, what What are we going to be studying during this series, and how are you hoping, hoping our listeners will come away equipped from it? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that used to bother me, still does now and then, is that a lot of us Christians— uh, who right are by definition followers of Jesus would have a very difficult time explaining to anybody else what are the prophecies that made us think he's the Messiah? What are the uh, you know what's the apologetics there? What uh, did Jesus actually accomplish on the cross? What is the evidence for his resurrection? What did Jesus teach? What can you give me a summary of his life? Right, and and I find that a lot of times we aren't really experts on Jesus, even though we are by definition followers of Jesus. So the we're kind of building off of a e institute course I did a, a couple of years ago on on the life of Jesus, and we're trying to get this information out to as many people as possible, just so we have a better grasp on on this foundational information about our faith. I know when you were younger, you went and you found those not cassettes. What are yeah, this is really old. So you remember they had uh, movie projectors that, and in these little canisters were you know the the uh film strips right and so the the film strip would load to this projector and then we would watch and so for sunday school it wasn't uncommon to have like here's one slide of a still of the life of jesus here's another still here's another still and i can remember even as a young elementary school student um, being frustrated that I didn't know how it all fit together, that I didn't understand what came first, what came second. Is there an order to the life of Jesus? Because we always seem to just study random stories. Like, here's a random story where he heals a leper. Here's a random story where he, you know, casts out a demon. Here's some. and But I had no idea, you know, what the flow was to his life. So one Easter morning, uh, when we had a break between, you know, sunrise service and then the rest of church starting, I snuck down into the elementary uh, part of the church and I got out the projector and I got out the canisters and I just took myself through the life of Jesus right, to try to figure out how does this all connect? I just love it. I just love little Marcus. <laughs> I want to understand. I want the big picture. Dog on it. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. So I'm very delighted to get to talk to you about uh, all of this and, and um, what you put together back then and, and, and further study throughout your life. Um, this is going to be great. So um, Jesus fulfilled at least 300 prophecies in the Bible. And in your special way, you've identified three prophetic pictures that we can use as anchors for how we think through some of these prophecies. 
like in our last series, these three pillars, if you will, um, can be remembered with three S's, seed, servant of the Lord, and son of man. So we're going to go through a crash course of these three today. But if you, dear listener, want more detail, Dad taught an entire e-course on the topic that you can find in our learning library. So, Father. All right. So, yeah, we do. We've got, just like we had three pillars that started with us, right? We had sacred romance, sovereign lordship, spiritual warfare. Now we have three foundational prophetic pictures, right? So we'll call them three pictures. And the first one is seed. The second is son of man. And the, uh, or actually, the second is uh, ser- suffering servant, mm-hmm. and then son of man. So the idea here is is seed. And that uh, when I was in seminary, we learned that uh, a lot of times in our English it says offspring, especially in the NIV. It said the the word was offspring. So Abraham was p- promised offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky. Uh, when at the event where Isaac is bound and Abraham is ready to sacrifice him, right? There are that that story is just dripping with overtones of what God was going to do with his own son. So Abraham is told, take your son, your only son, Isaac. And yet we know he had Ishmael, right? So this idea of your only son, meaning this is your heir, this is the one through the promised seed. And so this word seed has, is, we call it sometimes the saga of the seed. It runs all the way through uh, Genesis, and it starts with the promise in Genesis 3.15 that Eve would have a seed that would crush the serpent's head. And ever since, that's the foundation of this prophecy that, yeah, there's a war, but the seed of the son, you know, the seed of Eve is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. The, yeah. I was just going to say, in. and I find it interesting um, that maybe you could note, of women don't have seed. Right. <laughs> women have eggs. <laughs> Men have seed. That's the way the Hebrew works, yes. Uh-huh. So so why is it the woman's seed? Well, you know, and, and because of that, and because it is very unusual language to say the woman will have a seed, right, uh, that has forever been seen as a prophecy of the virgin birth, right, that the when the woman does conceive a seed um, without the help of man, so mm-hmm. to speak, that uh, the seed isn't going to come from man, it's coming from the woman. So that makes uh, the virgin birth already part of this. But in God's unique way, it wasn't obvious to everybody, oh, this must be a virgin birth. But once the virgin birth happened, you could look back and go, oh, that's what this is talking about. Foreshadowing. Right? Foreshadowing. God you is got a it. master storyteller. So that's the foundation of this saga of the seed, is that the seed is going to come through the woman. And then we find out, okay, the seed's going to come through Abraham. And there is this kind of epic struggle throughout, like, okay, is it when it goes through Abraham, is it going to be through Ishmael or is it going to be through Isaac? And God's clearly, it's going to be through Isaac. And then he has two sons. Is it going to be through Jacob or is it going to be through Esau? And again, God chooses Jacob. And then we see that there are 12 sons of Jacob, uh, whose name is changed to Israel. And it doesn't go to the firstborn, doesn't go to the secondborn, doesn't go to the thirdborn, it goes to the fourth. Now, the reason for this is pretty straightforward, too. And that is, there's some dark parts of the Bible that people don't often know about because we don't get taught in Sunday school. But one of them, for example, is the oldest son, Reuben, actually had sexual relations with his stepmother, right? Because... Israel or Jacob had two wives and two concubines. One of the concubines was named uh, was uh, of of Rachel's was Bilhah, 
And Reuben and Bilhah actually had relations together. And so he forfeited his birthright as the firstborn, and that's why he got bypassed. Well, the next two, Simeon and Levi, are the two who tricked the the men of Shechem into circumcising themselves in order for Shechem to marry their sister, Dinah. And then they wiped out all of the men of Shechem, right? So they were discarded because of this great sin, and that left it to Judah. And so Judah, the fourthborn, his name means praise. And the prophecies about the seed all now move into the line of Judah. And we're told that a star is going to come from the line of Judah, a scepter will rise from Judah, the seed is going to come from Judah. And then later on, we see, sure enough, David comes from the line of Judah, and then all of the promises regarding the seed come through David. So the foundation of all of the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament are related to this idea of seed. It starts with the seed of the woman, then goes to Abraham, then to Isaac, then to Jacob, then to Judah, then to David. And then from David on, we're waiting for Jesus. So cool. Uh, there's so much to explore in seed, and I'm trying to decide how much to press in because we have lots to cover. Do you want to move on to, to Suffering Servant? or I think it's to... enough for now to okay. introduce the idea. We can move on to Suffering Servant. Yes. All right. Well, this is going to take us into one of your favorite books of the Bible. Possibly, you've said, I've heard you say it is your favorite book of the Bible, but you know, there's, you know, wiggle well, room there. Yeah, it's Isaiah. <laughs> and, you know, Isaiah, how do I put this? Isaiah... Um, I, when I was uh, teaching Old Testament at Bethel, it was then Bethel College, now Bethel University. When I was teaching, uh, um, I remember the dean asked me to teach a course on Isaiah. And I said, I don't think I'm capable. Like, I'm not enough of an Isaiah scholar to teach a whole semester course just on that one book. And he said, well, if you don't do it, I got to go find a pastor in the area to come do it. And I'm like, okay, I'll do it. So, <laughs> And it was a great it was a great experience. It was a great excuse to just dive in, in in deep to that book. And one of the things I found is that it's just a book full of compassion. I find for people dealing with wounded hearts, there are a few books in the Bible, you know, other than maybe Psalms, that have such comforting uh, images of, of help, of God's compassion for those who are broken and the brokenhearted, and of this idea that the Messiah is going to come particularly for those who have been oppressed and those who have been abused. And so it's in Isaiah, for example, that we read, The Spirit of the Lord was upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to give sight to the blind, release to the captive, right? You have, mm-hmm. that's Isaiah 61. And the, uh, um, which is what Jesus reads. Which is what Jesus reads when he introduces his identity to the people. Mm-hmm. Like he goes, he goes straight there. And in the book of Isaiah, there is a famous portrait of God's servant, the servant of Yahweh. And the servant of Yahweh is presented in two very starkly different portraits. Um, Portrait number one is of a blind and deaf, right, and rebellious servant. And this is the idea that God chose, right, He, he elected the people of Israel, to be, be his servant. And he had a purpose for that. He wanted them to bring his glory to the world, his light to the world, but they messed up completely, right? They were blind servants who were rebellious, who turned to idolatry. And he's like, who's blind like my servant, right? And so there's parts of this where you're like, wait a second, it's the, it feels almost schizophrenic because is a servant of Yahweh a good person or a bad person? But what we find is that in this chosen line, which, you know, this is directly related to the seed, image that Israel as God's chosen seed 
is going to be embodied by one particular seed, who is the servant of Yahweh. And so what we see is that Israel as a whole failed in their task, all right, as as the seed of Yahweh. And so God is going to, through them, bring up another servant who will be his chosen servant, and he will succeed. He will bring justice to the nations. He will bring righteousness. He will establish a throne. You know, he will. And and then you get this unique thing that not only is he going to be victorious, but in there is this startling image of him suffering, that he's rejected, right? That he's despised and rejected, that he's lost. I've often felt that every Christian really needs to master Isaiah 53, Right, that I, if there's only one passage of scripture that every Christian should know inside and out, it's Isaiah 53, because that is the foundational passage that tells us how to interpret what happened on the cross. So, when you see, for example, when you see Jesus on the cross, how do you know how to interpret what you're seeing? Now, you look at it this way you know, what did the Jewish religious leaders see? Right, well, they saw that they had won. <laughs> you know, they saw that okay, we have successfully silenced this blasphemer. So they saw a blasphemer getting what he deserved. What did the Romans see? Well, they just saw somebody who was, <laughs> you know, another poor sap being crushed by the Roman machine. You know, they didn't see anything special. So how do we know that when Jesus died on the cross, he was dying for us? That this was an act of atonement. That this, and the answer is, it goes fundamentally back to Isaiah fifty-three where it says he was despised and he was rejected. He suffered. All we like sheep have gone astray. You know, we have each turned our own way, but the Lord laid on him all of our iniquity. And so we have the uh, this idea that Jesus is the substitute. He died for our substitution. And not only does Isaiah 53 talk about him dying, it talks about him being buried with the wealthy, and it talks about him rising again, because after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. He will see his children and be satisfied. So it's all right there. His rejection, uh, the purpose of his death, that is for substitution, it's to bear our sin. Um, his uh, his death, his burial, and his resurrection are all there. That's why Paul can write in 1 Corinthians 15, I pass on what I've received to you as a first importance, that Christ died according to the scriptures, right? That he was buried according to the scriptures, that he was raised, right? And he's probably got Isaiah 53 in mind for most of those. Uh, that's so epic. <laughs> it is. It's an epic passage, no doubt. <laughs> Oh, I'm really excited. I'm next semester. I'm going to be doing an exegesis of Isaiah um, with Dr. John Oswalt. Oh yeah, and Isaiah has been his baby in terms of what he studied with his life. So I'm so excited. Yeah, Dr. Oswalt's a bit of a bridge for us, right? Because mm-hmm. he was at Trinity when I was there, and now he's at Asbury while you're there. So yes. that's been a. I got a lovely little note from his wife, who was like, "Oh, I remember your 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 grandpa and your grandma." Yeah. I'm like, oh, it was so sweet. Now for a crash course. And the Son of Man. What does this title even mean? Where does it come from? <laughs> All right. So we started with seed, right? And this idea of seed of woman, who's going to become seed of Abraham, eventually seed of David. And that is the foundation for the suffering servant in Isaiah. And now we come to this idea of Son of Man. Most of us, if you're like me, I grew up being taught the Son of Man was the title of Jesus' humanity. Like he's Son of God and Son of Man. But the reality is that Son of Man in the Old Testament is a divine title. And to understand this, we have to go back to the book of Daniel. When Daniel has a vision, it says, In my vision at night, I saw thrones, right? And he saw the throne room of God. We would call that the divine council, right? Using <laughs> Michael Heiser's now famous terminology. So the in the uh, throne room of God, there's thrones set up. The Ancient of Days takes his seat. 
And it says, one like a son of man enters the presence of the Ancient of Days, and everybody serves him. And that word serve is the same Hebrew word that's used of worship. So it's in a sense, it's like the whole world worships the Son of Man. So that which raises a significant question, right? Who can walk into the presence of the Ancient of Days and receive worship, right? Who can walk into the presence of the Ancient of Days and everybody is bowing down to him? And you're looking like, okay, this is not a title of his humanity. It's also in this passage where it talks about one coming in the clouds, right? The Son of Man coming in the clouds. So Jesus, at his trial, when they're pinning him down, are you the Messiah or not? This is what he quotes. He says, I'm the Son of Man, (laughs) right? And you will see me coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, this idea of riding on the clouds is kind of a Baal metaphor because Baal was a storm god and he was pictured riding in the clouds in a lot of Canaanite literature. But in Hebrew uh, scripture, that image is corrected. And we're so, no, no, no. Yahweh is the storm god. Yahweh is the rider in the clouds. Yahweh is the one who does all of this. And so, again, presenting himself as the rider on the clouds is another divine image. Right? It's the idea that I am the true divinity here. It and it makes me think of, is it Psalm 18? Or there, there, there's some very epic psalm where it just describes God like riding on the clouds. And yeah, like I, you know what? I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. I'm thinking Psalm 29, but maybe it's in the... Uh, Scribe to the Lord, you know, scribe to Yahweh, glory and honor. There's a se- there are several passages of Scripture that talk about His voice like thunder, right, and lightning coming from His hands. And and part of what they're doing here is they are, it's an apologetic against Baal, saying it's not Baal who does all of this; it is Yahweh. So the Son of Man image is this idea that that Jesus is saying that He is the supreme ruler of the divine council. He is the supreme ruler that of all of the thrones. So in other words, this idea that Paul talks about in Ephesians, where he says, Jesus has been given a place of authority above thrones and dominions and principalities and powers and every title that can be given, not only this age, but the age to come. He probably has this Daniel text in mind, because here we see the Son of Man walking into the presence of the Ancient of Days with thrones laid out, and they are all acknowledging his supremacy. And so we see that when Jesus uh, died on the cross, when he was raised from the dead, he was given right a name above every name. He was given all authority in heaven and on earth. And as a result of that, he was found worthy right to open the scrolls in Revelation because not only was he the crown prince by birthright, he was the prince by victory. And so we see all of this tied up in this Son of Man uh, Son of Man imagery. So rather than us thinking of the Son of Man almost like as a reflection of his weakness, I, uh, that's not really where the Old Testament takes us. So those are our three core pictures of the Messiah, Messianic prophecy. I think uh, every Christian ought to really have a good handle on these, Seed, Suffering Servant, and Son of Man. Yeah, so epic. I just... Everybody go listen to the e-course and go deeper and study these passages. Um, Next week, we're going to continue looking at the life of Jesus with an episode going through your acrostic smart. Yes. (laughs) Um, But for now, any final thoughts on the episode application or... um, Well, I am looking forward to the smart thing. That actually came when I uh, was asked to teach uh, fifth graders about Jesus. (laughs) <laughs> and I wanted to give them a simple way that they could walk through and remember the life of Jesus and what it was all about, as well as the order of key events in his life. 
So we'll look at that next week. For this one, I just think it's good now and then, just like our worldview, right? The the prophetic portrait of Jesus is part of the worldview that grounds our faith, right? That reminds us this is who we serve. And I think, you know, I like to watch period pieces, you know, now, now and then, and, and kind of the idea of what's going on downstairs and upstairs, like an out and abbey, that kind of thing. So you get the... Uh, this picture that what gave a servant status was who they served. Mm-hmm. And we are servants of the Most High God and of the Messiah, and our status comes from who we serve. And I think it's a, a it's good for us to remind ourselves of, of these foundations. And it's also a good idea just to be able to explain them to other people. Uh, uh, what is the reason for our hope? And prophecy is certainly a big part of that reason. Huzzah. Very good. Well, it has been um, a delight to be sitting in person with you here talking about messianic prophecy. This is awesome. So thank you, Father. And thank you all for joining us on the trail today. If you want to keep going deeper with us on your walk with God, please subscribe to the Deeper Walk podcast and share with your friends. You can find more at our website, deeperwalkinternational.org. Thanks again. We'll see you back next week.